0: Now today, in our ongoing series on racism, we're going to look at church history and race and racism. And since we're a church, it's important for us to really know uh, something about our history, something about the stream of people that we stand uh, in as we continue to carry the banner of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, and that can be difficult at times, so we're, we're going to dig into some of the challenge and the pain of it today. So I um, want to just... Invite you to prepare your heart for that, um, and before we do that, though, I want to get into a subject that I think uh, is really important i 've been doing this in my introductions to help us to prepare for the topic. Sometimes we need to get rid of some of the misunderstandings that cause us um, to fail to to really uh, be able to engage with in this case the subject of church history and racism and, and so um, the topic I'm thinking about here is victimization. And when we talk about racial disparity and racism, it's common to hear statements like these. Affirming that black people are victims undermines their sense of responsibility or agency. So this, is one of, this is one of the things that we often hear. It makes them feel helpless to make changes and actually traps them in cycles of despair and dependency. Thus, it ends up being more detrimental and ultimately racist to focus on the victimization of blacks in the United States. Now, it's true, we believe strongly in personal responsibility and personal agency as Christians versus uh, all throughout the Bible uh, affirm personal responsibility. Um, here, Ezekiel 18.20, the second part of it says this, um, "...the son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father." Nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself. And the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. So right there you have it. We're each responsible for our own actions. And we stand before God individually in responsibility. Uh, And it's true that diminishing a person's sense of personal responsibility diminishes their ability to be an agent of change uh, in their own lives. Having responsibility for ourselves is part of what makes us um, made in the image of God. It is the image of God in us. It's part of what makes human beings special and unique. And that's true for all of us, whatever our skin color But I want you to hear this. It's also true there is such a thing as being a victim. This illustration is is sort of trivial. But many years ago, um, someone broke into the basement of my apartment in Evanston, Illinois. And stole two bikes. Leaving me bikeless for, you know, multiple years after that. Because I was a poor student and didn't really have uh, the money to replace them. And nobody said to me in the midst of that, well... It's your fault for owning bikes and for locking them in the basement, right? Nobody said that. I was a victim of a crime that had ongoing consequences in my life. And again, it's a trivial illustration, but it makes, it makes this simple point. We accept the reality of victimization and its consequences in all arenas of life. It's, it's just part of human existence, And so why is it so hard for us to accept it in the arena of racism? Africans were stolen from their homes, chained to the floor of floating prisons for months-long voyages during which 20% died, recategorized as in this social construct, which we talked about last week, as black, which meant less than chattel, which, which means property, And then sold and resold according to whatever was most profitable for their owners. And after finally being freed from slavery 250 years later, they were subject to dehumanizing Jim Crow laws for then the next 90 years. So often during that season, if they had money or achieved political power, they were beaten or killed. And you know the example that we've been thinking about over the last weeks is the Tulsa uh, massacre of 1921 uh, on Black Wall Street. Uh, estimated that 100 to 300 were killed in that massacre. Uh, relatively few white casualties, and the ones that were were taken to hospitals, but the black ones uh, oftentimes were not. Only a fraction of them were treated. Uh, Probably 10,000 black people were left homeless in that massacre. 32 million in today's dollars of property damage was done by black businesses. And and this is the thing. Not one person was ever brought to trial during the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre. Uh, and that's just one of many horrific incidents. Without denying personal responsibility or the importance of our own agency as human beings made in the image of God, it has to be acknowledged that horrific crime was done. There are victims and there's consequences that are ongoing and unquestionably passed from one generation to the next. We talked about that in in the first, probably in both of our sermons so far, how those consequences get get passed on from one generation to the next. And then they're compounded by new expressions of racism that arise in each modern era. So victimization is is a real thing, and acknowledging it doesn't take away from anyone's responsibility or sense of agency. That, that's just something we need to get clear in our minds. The two can coexist. In, and in so many areas of our lives, we accept that reality, that the two exist. And yet sometimes in this area, in the area of racism, um, we don't. Now there's another piece, and I haven't known where exactly to, to put this, but I think this is a good, a good place in my intro today. Um, and this is an important reality too, um, and it simply is that, you know, white people have benefited from racism in myriad ways, but we've also done harm. To ourselves by it. And, and that's something that just needs to be called out as well. It diminishes us and makes us less than what God has called us to be. Let me give you a quote from a pastor. Walter Henniger writes this. He says, As white men and women have inflicted the wound of racism upon black men and women and children, the cost to us has been the mirror image of this wound into ourselves. And we have hidden this wound deep within Where it has grown and warped our minds and our hearts. And so, when we come to this, it's with a sense that there is a tremendous need all around for healing. All right, so with this awareness, um, we come to today's question, which again comes from the parable. I'm using this as a framework over these weeks for having this conversation about racism. Uh, what wounds, this is the question, have been inflicted upon our African-American brothers and sisters? What, what wounds have been f- inflicted upon our African-American brothers and sisters? And, and since we're the church, right, we're, we're a church, um, it's particularly important for us to ask the, the hard question. Uh, what wounds have been inflicted by the church itself? Upon uh, African Americans and upon our Christian African American brothers and sisters. And as I said from Ephesians 3 at the end of the service last week, you know, we, the church, we're supposed to be leading in the work of reconciliation. And an important part of our living into our identity as reconcilers is understanding the history, our own history. Uh, that goes before us, upon which our circumstances have been built. So, we're going to get into that now. Let me read the parable first, and I'll try to highlight kind of where I'm where I'm pulling out um, the theme for today. Luke 10, 25, twenty five. You're getting good and familiar with this parable now. Um, a lawyer, uh, and that's just somebody who was uh, really into the to the scriptures in that particular context. Uh, is having a dialogue with Jesus and the dialogue leads to this, you know, famous parable of the Good Samaritan. So Luke 10, 25, And behold, a lawyer stood up to him to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, and again, right here, this is true north for us. and, And so much of this conversation What the lawyer answers and then Jesus affirms in these words that follow are true north. We keep coming back to it. The answer is this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. But the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, Who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite. Those are two forms of religious figures during that time when he came to the place and saw him passed by on the other side but a Samaritan we talked about this last week a Samaritan is a person of what we would consider to be a different race from the Jewish context in which Jesus is telling this story and to the the hearers of the parable but a Samaritan as he journeyed came to where he was and when he saw him he had compassion he went to him and bound up his wounds Pouring on oil and wine. Now, the, the wounded man had specific wounds. Specific things had happened to him. And the Samaritan went and he bound up those specific wounds. And, and this is our entryway into the, to the topic this morning of the history of racism in the church. What are the wounds that African Americans have received throughout the course of the history of the United States, in particular with respect to the church? So the Samaritan bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy... And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now Jesus does not say that the man who fell among the robbers was responsible because he shouldn't have been walking down that road. That's not the point of the parable. Jesus doesn't say that if the man who fell among robbers would just have taken responsibility for himself, gotten back up again, you know, pulled himself up by his bootstraps and dressed his wounds, then everything would have been fine. The point of the parable is not that the man who fell among robbers just needs to stop acting like a victim. Jesus doesn't seem to be afraid that if the Samaritan stops and binds up his wounds pays for his nights in the inn and provides him food, somehow he's going to become permanently dependent upon the Samaritan and never do another day's work. There are moments when it's appropriate to recognize that a wrong has been done and that wrong needs to be acknowledged and responded to. And the history of the white church is mixed. Some did act like the Good Samaritan. Uh, John Wesley, who spoke biblically and powerfully. I I was reading this week uh, against white supremacy in the 1700s. Harriet Beecher Stowe, the Quakers, and the Moravians. There's a beautiful list. Some, however, acted like the priest and the Levite walking by on the other side. And then, unfortunately, far too many acted like the robbers themselves. And as hard as it is, uh, that's what we want to look into a bit this morning. This is a history that we need to know. We need to be aware of. We need to acknowledge and understand. It's going to be uncomfortable, but... But the goal is awareness and acknowledgement. If you've been around Pastor Dante, you've heard him talk about this. Awareness and acknowledgement of the sins of the past. Without doing this work, we can't move to the next phase, which is action. And and next week, that's that's where we're going to begin to dip our toe into, is action. But we don't want to go to action before we've gone to the place of awareness and acknowledgement. And certainly, we're not going to acknowledge everything this morning. There's not time for that. But it is important, in my view, that we do so publicly, and we do it from the pulpit, right? It's an important step. As we approach this work with humility, um, we do so also with hope because of Jesus Christ, because of Jesus atoning death on the cross. Um, Because of that, we can be honest about the past. And and I want to remind us of something that's really important this whole dynamic because I'm I'm imagining that for some of us even walking down this part of the road today and looking back at history is going to be is going to be difficult for us and, and going to raise some some questions and some some resistance in us. And I want to just remind us something that's so true when we talk about race racism but it's true about every aspect of the Christian Life, And that is simply this. The gospel was never about us being great. It was never about us being the kind of people that always do the right thing, right? Church doesn't exist because there's a bunch of really good people who decided to get together. Church exists not based on the greatness of people, but on the greatness of God. The gospel is not about It never was about us being great. It's always been about God being great because he found a way to provide forgiveness of sin for a broken people. So there's nothing new here in our history. It's it's the broken, tragic story of humankind ever since Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit. So I want to invite you to walk with me on this. I've got five sins of the American church that I want to call out in the short time that we have this morning. The first one, I'm going to label with a complicated word here, it's syncretism. Syncretism is just mixing together of two things. What I have in mind here is when Jesus says, um, you can't love God and, and mammon. You can't serve God and mammon. Now, mammon refers to money or belongings or property. You can't, you can't serve both of those. You can't worship Jesus and order your life around the pursuit of Possessions. But the American church did that. In the late 1800s, Frederick Douglass wrote this criticism of the white church. I'm going to read a larger portion of it and some of the important bits I'll put up on the the screen for you. He writes this. He says, We have men sold to build churches. like Literally this happened. Women sold to support the gospel. And babes sold to purchase Bibles for the poor heathen. So in other words... Slaves would be sold and the funds would be used to support the ministry of the church. All for the glory of God and the good of souls. The slave auctioner's bell and the church-going bell chime in with each other. And the bitter cries of the heartbroken slave are drowned in the religious shouts of his pious master. Revivals of religion and revivals in the slave trade go hand-in-hand together. The slave prison and the church stand near each other. The clanking of fetters and the rattling of chains in the prison and the pious psalm and the solemn prayer in the church may be heard at the same time. The dealers in the bodies of men erect their stand in the presence of the pulpit, and they mutually help each other. The dealer gives his bloodstained gold to support the pulpit, and the pulpit in return covers his infernal business with the garb of Christianity. Here we have religion and robbery, the allies of each other, devils dressed in angels' robes, and hell presenting the semblance of paradise. And then he goes on to make this very famous statement, between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference. So wide that to receive the one as good, pure, and holy is of necessity to reject the other as bad, corrupt, and wicked. You cannot serve God and mammon, money, possessions. If we had time, we could work through how the love of mammon and its privileges are still at work in us. And, I, and, and there's so many spots like this where if we had time to, to dig deeper, and I'm hoping that in the coming season, along with the help of our faith and race team, we can do some of that digging together. But I need to move on to the second one. second one is division. So despite the clear teaching in the book of James that we are to show no partiality uh, in the church and that we're not to have people, you know, as James puts it, sitting in different places of the church, the early church relegated African Americans to second-class seating. I mean, in direct contradiction to what the Scripture teaches. In the early 1800s, you had African Americans like uh, Richard Allen, who was a pastor, a preacher. He wanted to worship with... Uh, their, his white brothers and sisters and, and the others that were, that were with him, African-Americans with him. But the white leadership of the church treated them with such partiality. And it became so bad that eventually they had to make the hard decision to separate. They felt compelled to leave And that began to happen all over the country, and uh, Richard Allen then became part of a movement which ended up uh, becoming the African Methodist Episcopal Church, one of the first black churches. But this happened in a number of different strains, and it wasn't that this huge division between the brothers and sisters in Christ, we still experience it on a Sunday morning, right? Right? Uh, And in large part, it wasn't the choice of African-Americans to divide in that way. I mean, the stories of the early African-Americans in the the white church and the church was to hang in there and to strive to be together, but it just ultimately couldn't work because of racism. And the result of the refusal of the white church to practice biblical Christianity with its black brothers and sisters, um, it's gotten into the system of the way we do church in America. So even, even now, we still have this incredible division. See, that's, that's, what it, that's, that's systemic racism. It gets into the system and it perpetuates itself. And it's why, to this day, as people have often said, Sunday morning is the one of the most divided times of the week. It's ongoing. Sin number three, another big word for you, but I'll explain it. It, it. It's not complicated. Gnosticism. One of the first heresies of the early church, now going back to the time right after the time of Jesus, the early church I'm talking about, One of the the first heresies that they faced was something called Gnosticism, and and that really was an emphasis of the spiritual and a rejection of the material. Okay, so it's overemphasizing the spiritual realities of the gospel and and de emphasizing the material realities of the gospel. This life, Um, they loved a spiritual Jesus, but the, the Gnostics loved a spiritual Jesus, but disbelieved. Uh, In a physical, bodily, suffering, resurrected Jesus. And the early church in America was guilty of a similar kind of heresy. And perhaps today we are as well. When they preached a gospel of spiritual liberty to a people who were shackled in physical chains. And never acknowledge the inconsistency between those two. Right? The spiritual and the physical realm. This is one of the most amazing things about Christianity. They're not separated. Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. You can't have one without the other. But the early American church tried to separate The two, the spiritual and the physical. In in Jesus' first sermon he said God has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Right there. I mean that is the opening salvo of Jesus Christ as he begins his ministry. And it's true that there are always going to be forms of captivity and oppression in the world and we experience those in various ways in our own lives. But, but but that's not an excuse for what happened in the early American church and what can still happen in our churches today. Because during slavery, many Christians had the power to set people free, to align the physical with the spiritual. And they chose not to under the justification of this mistaken Gnostic Belief, this idea that as long as you're spiritually free, I can keep you in physical bondage. Sin number four: apathy. Martin Luther King, Jr. in his letter from Birmingham Jail explains uh, the impact of of the sin of apathy. Uh, much like the priest and the Levite. Um, you know, who walked by the point here, is that there's really no neutral ground when it comes to the sin of racism. In in the parable of the Good Samaritan, you don't find a a possibility of remaining neutral. Either you stop and you help, or you walk by and you're guilty of complicity with what's happened, the, the horrific injustice that's happened. There's no middle ground. There's no neutral space in the story of the parable of the Good Samaritan. So um, here's what uh, Martin Luther King Jr. said as he grappled with the white church and its apathy towards the sin of racism. Um, I must make two honest confessions to you, my Christian and Jewish brothers. He's he's writing this to a mixed crowd, but he's writing it to us, to Christians. Um, First, I must confess that over the past few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's Counselor or the Ku Klux Klanner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with your methods methods of direct action who paternalistically believes he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, who lives by a mythological concept of time, and who constantly advises the Negro to wait for a more convenient season. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. Apathy. And then, number five, hypocrisy. We don't need to say much here except this simple representative fact, and that is that pastors like Jonathan Edwards. And George Whitfield, who, uh, in in any list of uh, American uh, influential Christians, these two would appear on it. Two men widely recognized as America's great Christian leaders. They both had slaves. Uh, Whitfield had upwards of twenty throughout the course of his life, and he was even guilty of what we described before of using slavery to fund ministry work. Uh, what can we say that he loved Jesus, but he embraced white supremacy? Failed to appropriately love those for whom Jesus died. God, help us not to be guilty of the same. Help us to work through the ways in which we are guilty. You know, two weeks ago I mentioned about pastors who owned slaves, and, and this one really struck me uh, at the core. I mentioned it the first week. They owned slaves and were nonetheless willing to break apart marriages and separate children um, for profit or expedience. I mean, that's the syncretism sin that we're talking about. That's hypocrisy, right? Because, because God says with respect to marriage, what I have joined together, let no man separate. That's a, a declaration in Scripture. And yet white pastors were willing to supersede that declaration for expediency and profit. And it's hypocrisy. And it's partiality. uh, And it's a whole host of other things. And so what we need to do as a church is to acknowledge and address the sin of racism. Because if we don't at least these five, and I'm sure there's more: syncretism, division, gnosticism, apathy, hypocrisy. Um, if we don't, then our integrity is is in question. Do we really believe that, that God made all in his image? Do we really believe that Jesus died for all people? Do we really believe that in the consummation of all things, in the, in the new heaven and new earth, there will be people from every nation, every people, tribe, and language gathered together before the throne of God, worshiping, that that is one of the hallmark visions of the redemptive plan of God. Do we really believe that that's true? If so, then we have to grapple with the history of the church, which is out of alignment with that vision. It's a question of integrity. The inconsistency between that teaching and the history of the American church has to be acknowledged. I've said it already, but the goal of this sort of brief survey, and and I hope and pray that, that we're each on a journey of doing our own homework in understanding in greater detail the history that I've alluded to um, this morning, uh, but but the goal of going through this his, history is not that we just endlessly wallow in it, right? That that's not the purpose, and it's something that I hear people ask quite a bit: like, what are we supposed to do? Just endlessly wallow in this? history and And I think actually that 's part of the problem that mindset is part of the problem. The failure to confront these realities uh, head on is ultimately what 's giving the lingering negative power of racism over black people and and white people alike because Because of the gospel, see, we have hope for something better, something new. We have the hope of of beginning to, if you want to say, sing a new song as relates to race in our context, beginning with the church. We can't be responsible for what happens in the entire country, but we can be responsible for what happens in the church. And according to my Bible, when the church steps into that responsibility, it will have a significant impact on the world around it. I'm so ready to sing a new song. As I was working on this this week, I started to think through, you know, what would it look like to actually meet this sinful past head on, to acknowledge it, to to embrace the reality of it, uh, and then to move through that to something we have hardly even allowed ourselves to dream of because we've been so busy sweeping it under the rug and stuffing it into the closet. What kind of uh, freedom and openness and freshness, fresh movement of the work of God in the world could come through the opening of this this hard past to reconciliation and renewal. And of course, the question is how does that how does that take place? What tools do we have? Uh, we, there can't be any shortcuts. But what tool do we have to be able to meet this? What I think right now is, is, a, is a moment of opportunity for us as the church. And the answer is simply this the way there is, in fact, the gospel of Jesus Christ. To become aware of our sin, right? This is what the gospel teaches we become aware of our sin, we acknowledge our sin, we repent of our sin, we receive forgiveness. Of our sin on the basis of the atoning work of Jesus Christ, we turn away from our sin and we begin to live in a new way. We begin to sing a new song in the power of the Holy Spirit who has been released upon us, filling us because the atoning work of Jesus Christ. On the cross, makes possible that in-filling. Now, we're going to look next week at what that looks like to begin to move forward in action. That's the subject of next week. For right now, I want us to sit in the acknowledgement stage for a moment. And maybe, you know... We're all at different places in, the, in this journey. Some of us just need to be okay sitting in the acknowledgement space for quite some time even. We don't have to rush to action. In fact, our action will be more um, informed if we sit deeply in the acknowledgement space. So it's enough for you just to sit in the acknowledgement space right now. There's time for the Holy Spirit to work and to give us the action piece, which we've got to get to, but we don't want to rush to. See, this is the thing about the gospel is it is a message of extreme realism and of unending hope. And that's why we can actually sit in the acknowledgement space for as long as is required. And to look with clear eyes and realistically at what has happened, and to do the spiritual work that needs to be done, the gospel work that needs to be done in relation to the history of the past and in relation to our own sin as pertains to racism. We can, because of the gospel, we can be extremely realistic and unendingly hopeful. That's why this is the greatest asset that we have when we meet this challenge. And so what I've tried to outline in the sermon is that there's there's been a robbery. That's my point. There's been a robbery and there's been a beating. There's been a robbery and there's been a beating. And it's been against African Americans in this country. And the church has been complicit in it. And the question Jesus is posing us is this. Did you or will you walk by on the other side of the road? Or did you or will you stop and help? If we did the one in the past, we could do the other in the future. But those are the only two options. There's no neutral ground. And I say we've largely walked by. Going back to the five historical sins I outlined, we have maintained the Sunday morning division. Between white and black Christians, repeating the sin of syncretism, you know, serving God and money. We've been at ease with the huge wealth disparity between white and black churches, our very own brothers and sisters. Repeating the Gnostic sin, we've been all too comfortable with the injustice in the real world, just focusing on the spiritual side while we preach this perfect justice of the new heaven and the new earth. We've been apathetic, waiting for the world to lead the all-people's charge when God called us, the church, to be leading it. Ephesians 2 and 3. And all this amounts to our being hypocritical, misrepresenting the God we worship, who from creation to redemption to consummation, I'm going to keep saying it, the heavenly vision loves and pursues all nations Peoples, tribes, tongues. To ultimately gather them around himself in worship. But even acknowledging that reality. With clear eyes. um, We hold on to the hope. That the gospel brings that this doesn't have to be the end of the story. The the division, the hypocrisy, the apathy, uh, it doesn't have to be the end of the story. We can write a new story. We can sing a new song, and that's what I'm praying, and that's what I'm praying we're going to collectively work together to do is this, to, to write a new song. I love Psalm 96, which captures the hope that is for us in this moment. Let me uh, invite the worship team to come up as I, as I read this, and I'm going to pray and open the table. But Psalm 96 says this, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. That's the gospel hope. Sing to the Lord all the earth, not the quote-unquote white people or quote-unquote black people or whatever you want to say, however you want to divide up the human race. There's just one race. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. And this, declare his glory among the nations, that's still possible because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. His marvelous works among just some of the people, no. The psalmist says his marvelous works among all the peoples, the same all peoples who will be there present before the throne worshiping God for all eternity, bringing their marvelous diversity into the presence of God to show the power and the majesty and the wonder of the God that we worship. Amen. God, we acknowledge our sin we acknowledge that you've called us to a different way we acknowledge that our minds need to go through a process of renewal we acknowledge though that we are not alone that your grace is upon us your mercy is over us your spirit is in us Were it not for that, we would be hopeless, but we are a people of unending hope because of you. So fill us with your spirit, guide us, guide our hands now as we begin in these next weeks to talk about what does it look like, guide our hands, help us to see each of us in our unique circumstances, with our unique journeys, working through our our own uh, situations to answer the call that you have on our lives, we're going to get there, we're going to move, but Lord, we sit before you now in your grace, calling upon you for forgiveness, repenting of our sins.